Turbo Alper and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance, in this case on a Tuesday as opposed to a Monday. On a Tuesday as opposed to a Monday, for various reasons, is managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Uh, I will tell the listener right away, uh, right at the beginning of this, that if you were going for baseball talk specifically, maybe skip ahead to about the 11 or 12-minute mark. That's what I'm going to say. The 11 or 12-minute mark, go to that. The first 10 minutes are really uh, composed of appeals, two sorts of appeals. On the one hand, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, and his wife have recently purchased a dog, which they will receive next week. Dave Cameron is uh, interested in how to take care of his dog, in particular uh, where he maybe could buy supplies for that dog. So what we have done is we have abused the podcast, taken advantage of the listeners, for Dave Cameron to make an appeal to listeners as to how he might uh, best buy supplies for this dog, toys and a, what is this like a, a cage for the dog? Like a, not a not a cage, but like a nice cage, like a cage the dog likes to go into. Uh, um, and uh, the second thing is that I, the host Carson Stuley, have also made an appeal. I'm interested in um, I'm interested in uh, funds, mutual funds maybe, or other sorts of in, uh, an index fund or an ETF. That is also socially responsible, low expense ratio. And uh, I'm also sending – this is an appeal to the listeners. If you know of that kind of thing, uh, feel free to make a comment in the comments. Otherwise, we talk about baseball. We actually do. So like, right around the 12-minute mark, I'm guessing, you can hear about uh, the Blue Jays and what they've done recently and what it means for their Im- immediate and less immediate future. Uh, you can also probably hear about this uh, – the trade tar- uh, trade targets. And the trade deadline, which is just a, a little more than a month away. That's the baseball talk. There, there's the actual baseball talk. And then there are also, uh, for the first uh, 10, 12 minutes, personal appeals. That's what it is. It's a, it's an addition to Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. I'm also. Uh, this is via a, a, a an internet hotspot, a wireless hotspot. Right. So let's hope the quality is good. Well, I don't, I don't think we should aim for better than usual, right? No, no. I mean the bar is low. Yes. Let's hope the quality is normal. Let's hope the quality. Right. Let's hope it's some. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. One reader recently. Or one listener recently uh, reached out to me and said, uh, "Can we do anything about uh, the quality of Dave Cameron's microphone?" And I mentioned to him that I think what you're responding to is just Dave Cameron's voice. Right. Yes. Unless you want to do like larynx surgery, uh, and you know, you have some new technology to make me sound better, uh, it's probably just me. It's just probably just Dave Cameron. Yeah. I'm uh, checking the levels right now. By the way. Oh, yes, the level checking. Yeah, but just to make sure they're okay. Uh, yeah, so this is working out though. This is, uh, I met my in-laws and, uh, my mother-in-law happens to have a wireless hotspot that I'm utilizing and the quality, quality is very good, I would have to say. I never used one of these except, uh, maybe once or twice, but, uh, very briefly in those cases. This is nice though, because for whatever reason, they don't get internet to their house. So only dial-up is, is available. But this hotspot, um, is working very well. Yeah, it's uh, the joys of cellular technology. Do you have you ever used one of these? 
I have. Uh, Appleman has one that he travels with, and occasionally when we go places, they like to either not have Internet where we need to have Internet, or they like to charge you outrageous amounts of money for hotel Internet, and then I just connect him and reach off his. Do we know what the what a, what a rate is for something like this? This has a five gigabyte cap, I think, per month. Yeah, I think these things generally run somewhere around fifty dollars a month. It's basically like subscribing to, you know, if you were going to have cable internet at your house, uh, they charge you a, a pretty similar fee. So um, they're not super cheap, but they are useful uh, for people who travel a decent amount. Yeah, well, that seems like uh, my, my my sense is. I mean, I don't necessarily know what the speeds are, but if you had like cable or DSL at your house, uh, you might be able to stream certain video, which you would not be able to with a hotspot. Is that the case? Yes, I think the big – I mean, I looked into this a little bit ago. Since I watch all, all, you know, almost all of my baseball through MLB TV uh, and stream a lot of video, a, a cap system wouldn't work for me. Uh, I would watch a couple of baseball games and then be out of Internet for the month. So I need a normal wired – uh, cable internet for my house, but I have considered, and you know, a lot of cell phones nowadays, including iPhones, have hotspot capabilities. You don't even have to have an extra piece of technology just to pay AT&T or Verizon, whoever it is, more money per month in order to turn your phone into a hotspot. Uh, I've considered doing that, and uh, I'm still considering doing that, considering that last night my wife decided that we are adopting a puppy, and so oh, I'm going okay. to be t- t- taking it to the dog park with some frequency. Uh, and I might need the internet at said dog park. So I might, in the future, be turning my phone into a hotspot so I can work while my puppy runs all over the place. Okay, do, so are you, do you own the puppy yet? Is it at your house? Well, it will be getting dropped off next week. Okay, wow. And do you know, are you a dog man? Oh, I grew up with, we had a dog growing up or several dogs, so I do like animals. Uh, generally, I have been uh, reluctant to get one uh, since my wife and I have been married because, since I work from home, I'm pretty sure that any dog we get is going to instantly become my dog because I'm going to be home with it all day, and it's going to see my wife for a couple hours a day. So uh, I'm fairly certain that the dog is going to become overly attached to me, and I'm going to bear most of the responsibility for taking care of this dog. But I finally gave in, and it was uh, too cute to not not agree to. What, uh, what breed are we talking about? It's a uh, Labrador mix. Uh, we think it's probably a golden retriever, uh, yellow lab mix, um, but certainly more lab than golden. Mm-hmm. And, how, and how do you co- is uh, is there a sabermetrics of uh, deciding what sort of dog to get? Well, someone tweeted at me using the scouting scale so when I sent out a picture on Twitter last night saying that it was 80 cuteness. Mm-hmm. So I think that was kind of the deciding factor. This is a top of the line cuteness and. You know, it's probably going to be 80 destructiveness and 80 time sink and, uh, you know, I think dogs, especially young dogs in general, uh, the fact that they're cute keeps us from killing them because if they weren't cute, we would, we would yeah, keep yeah. them like mosquitoes. Yeah. Now in terms of home, home pets though, now you, do you have a land, do you have land, Cameron? I do, sort of. So, I mean, the house that my wife and I purchased as a foreclosure a few years ago sits on half an acre, but most of it's wooded, uh, so there's not really like a lot of, I mean, we have some yard, but uh, most of our land is, has trees and poison ivy and things that we wouldn't let a puppy go run in. Right. So you have, are you going to, you're going to go to this dog, is this dog park very far? Uh, there's one that's 15 minutes from our house. It's actually just opened about a month ago. Um, it's uh, in probably like the nicest park in Winston, but the annoying thing is uh, the park is so nice and it's, uh, 
you know, requires maintenance, but they charge you every time you go. It's not a free park. It's $2 oh per car to get in. So oh uh, if I go with some frequency, this dog is going to cost me a lot of money. Yeah, wow. wow. And the dog is going to cost me a lot of money anyway. You should see my Amazon cart because we have to have all these, like, things before the person drops off the dog. It should have a home inspection. You have to have, like, you know, the crate and the food and the bowl and the chew toys and, you know, all these things in place. So, you know, it must if podcast listeners who are pet experts want to advise on a cheaper option than Amazon, that's the, the best I've been able to find. Uh, but, you know, for, for I'm open to suggestions sort of... from veteran pet owners. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, I, I would say, uh, well, actually, in the spirit of that, in the spirit of appealing to the to the public, the listening public, especially since I have a, a certain idea, a vague idea of the uh, demographic of listeners, Cameron, before we get to baseball talk in particular, um, one thing I've been curious about is the world of um, uh, personal investment, uh, not necessarily for lots of money, but, you know, like if you have uh, some money and then you can contribute a small amount to it, what are the best investments for uh, for the personal investor? Maybe you know the so, answer uh, to that. I'm a little bit. I mean, I'm not like a you know hedge fund manager or something, but I I know a little bit. Uh, it, for small amounts of money that you are aiming towards, like retirement or long-term financial security, yeah, uh, you probably just want to go with a no-cost or very low-cost mutual fund that uh, is not actively managed. There are basically two kinds of mutual funds. There's one where a guy takes all of your money in order to trade stocks during the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, he takes a pretty significant cut of your. That's the expense um, ratio, is that right? Yes, right, okay. exactly. He he takes a nice little cut. Uh, you can get um, like the you know funds that track the S and P 500 or uh, track certain segments of the market, and they do all these things automatically through algorithms. They take a much smaller cut because there's no human involvement, and uh, they generally do pretty well. So that is, those are called funds. index funds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those are the cheapest of... things to do. Done a little bit of research, and then there are some such thing as ETFs as well. Are you familiar with ETFs? Yeah, yes, I'm uh, somewhat familiar with ETFs. I don't own any, but I, I know what they are. Right, and they're similar, I think, in terms of index. There, you, there are yeah. places you can get all these ETFs. Now, one wrinkle in it is that, um, if possible, and I, I understand that this is becoming more popular. If possible, though, my wife and I would like to participate in it uh, in something that is socially responsible. Uh, and I, there is well, the stock market would probably not be the thing. <laughs> well, no, no, but I think that there are there are some. Uh, it looks like there are some uh, companies uh, that offer uh, fund products, mutual fund products that that have a socially responsible bent to them. Calvert, I think, is the most popular, but there appear to be some other options that uh, are not very expensive and, and actually do do uh, relatively well. Uh, Right. I think the main key in all of this is that if you have enough money to invest, we need to start capitalizing about lowering your pay. Yeah, yeah. No, this is all. This is not. This is not money I've made from this from working. This is. Uh, uh, this is <laughs> money your bank that, robberies in your free time. No, no. This is just. Uh, it might. Um, when I was younger, uh, my family was. Uh, um, they impressed upon me that saving was important. So when I had uh, right. summer jobs, um, etc. And, uh, you know, they would do like – they were essentially – it was like a 401K for for 14-year-olds. <laughs> so they would match they, they would match my uh, my outlay. That's so, pretty nice. Yeah, it's not bad. Right. 
Yeah, well, my parents love me. I mean, they don't show it all the time, but uh, right. I think they do. And I now imagine you walking into a, a mutual fund office, like, you know, Edward Jones or something, and handing him a piggy bank full of coins. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's coins. But uh, buy me an index fund. Yeah, buy, buy me an index fund. All right, so index funds, you say, with a low expense ratio index funds, that should just be fine, yeah. put it away. I mean, that's the no-brainer, uh, you know, don't want to spend too much of your time trying to figure out how to get rich right. plan. If you want to get rich, you know, there's other ways. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not at that point yet. All right. Well, that's good. Um, that's good. And if anyone knows anything about uh, social, social, uh, socially responsible investing, it's also called impact investing or community investing. Feel free to leave a note uh, in the comment section of the, this particular edition of the podcast because that would. Well, be, let's be honest. No one is still listening. No we have scared listening. them all off. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Let's get to baseball. Let's get to um, something that is harder to explain than either of the things we brought up here, and that's uh, the Blue Jays of late. Yeah, can we start there? Is that all right? Yeah, we can start there. Yeah, um, the the thing with the Blue Jays is they've won what eleven or or twelve now, or have, what have they done? Well, they lost last night. So okay, now so, they have now lost one in a row. One in a row, right? That's uh, oh, so eleven eleven of twelve though is what we'll say. Okay. Um, this was a team that um, appeared entering the season to be quite promising. Uh, it appeared immediately after that to uh, to have less promise, um, or maybe not. It's a question of promise, but they had a bad record, and so even if they played like one of the best teams in the league, they likely would have still had difficulty making the playoffs. Now they've done something that's, uh, I guess, just as unexpected in a different direction, which is they've uh, they've won a number of games, and they they find themselves what five or six games out now. Uh, five and a half. Yeah. Five five and a half. Okay, so they're five and a half games out. The Toronto Blue Jays. First of all, uh, how did they do that? How did they win all those games in a row? I mean, is it just is it the explanation we think? Well, I mean, you know, they outscored their opponents, so yes, it's that explanation. But I mean, if we wanted to go a little deeper than that, uh, the pitching has gotten healthy, the defense has gotten a lot better, and Adam Lind has hit like a man's best. I mean, uh, early in the season, you can trace almost all of their problems to run prevention. Uh, Mark Burley was terrible. Josh Johnson was terrible. Uh, Brandon Morrow got hurt, you know, uh, Jay Hack got hit in the head with a line drive. Like, you know, they're, they're pitching, uh, Ricky Romero is the disaster of all disasters, uh, was terrible even in the minor leagues. And they're pitching basically completely fell apart. Their defense was awful. They couldn't play one from scoring. That's turned around. I mean, Mark Burley's been pretty good for the last six weeks or so. Uh, Josh Johnson's been excellent in the last few starts since coming off the DL. Um, you know, so I think that their pitching is still not great, but it's, it's been, good enough, and, you know, R.A. Dickey has uh, not been excellent, but he's given them some innings, and uh, I think there's some hope that he could, you know, potentially pitch better in the second half. So their pitching is coming around. Their defense was atrocious the first month of the year. That's been uh, better. <laughs> not great still, but definitely better. Uh, and then, you know, offensively, we knew Encarnacion and Batista uh, were going to do some things with Jose Reyes, and he was a pretty solid performer for a shortstop, but Adam Lind has kind of been the guy who's transformed the offense over the last month or so and um, given them a, a left-handed power bat who's uh, hitting 330 with power and drawing walks. And he's basically been uh, one of the best hitters in baseball for a little bit of, you know, 150 plate appearances or something like that. Uh, you know, it's uh, probably not going to keep up, but uh, he's been a, a monster for them. And if we had a, a middle-of-the-order bat that they didn't expect to have uh, from the left side, better pitching and better defense, you, it adds up to a, a pretty good run. So one thing I wanted to talk about is in, um, is, is Edward Encarnacion. He, I think la- last year he had his big breakout, um, and then I, th- I think I have the order right, um, and then he received a contract extension from the Blue Jays. Is that the order in which those things happened? 
Well, he signed in the middle of his breakup. He signed in last July, uh, so I think it was like around the All-Star break. Right. So you, you, when you were sort of giving your explanation there, you take for granted that Encarnacion is going to be one of the main offensive contributors for this team, but that's not necessarily something you could have taken for granted two years ago. Right. I mean, he's certainly uh, turned himself into a better player than he was. I mean, I think early in his career, uh, he always showed that he had power and contact skills, and those two things are, are a pretty impressive combination. There's not a lot of hitters who can both hit for power and contact at the same time, uh, but his defense was so atrocious that he canceled out a lot of his offensive value, uh, and he, you know, his batters were so low that he didn't really hit for enough of an average to keep the on-base percentage high enough in order to stay in the lineup. So, uh, low on base percentages and terrible defense uh, are things only the Mariners really like. Um, the other 29 teams don't think they're very good. So, you know, Encarnacion was kind of passed around, and last year he figured out uh, how to actually get on base with fair with some regularity, and, uh, you know, his defense isn't nearly as terrible when he's DHing. So um, he's turned himself into a, you know, certainly above-average player and, and even a pretty good one. Now, uh, we know that uh, typically when a guy moves to DH or – um, you know that he's not. Uh, he might suffer a penalty there. I would assume that at the same time, um, there's it's possibility. I mean, anecdotally at least, you hear reports. Oh, he he moved to an easier position. Maybe he, he moved to first, or he doesn't have to worry about defense anymore, and that could help him at the plate. I, I'm curious in that second uh, about that second point. Is there any indication that when we move a guy uh, to a less demanding position on the defensive spectrum, that there that there is uh, we might see some increase in the offense? For whatever reason, I suppose, but um, perhaps because he's he's not uh, worried about it. Yes, but only I think the only evidence I've seen for that has been moving off of catcher. Uh, I think in terms of moving from shortstop to third base or shortstop to second base or center field to left field, there's not uh, a lot of evidence that a move in that direction, just kind of basically playing a similar type of position that's not quite as physically demanding uh, in terms of how many balls are hit in your direction. That doesn't seem to do much for your offense. Moving from catcher to first base or catcher to third base even, uh, you know, takes a significant strain off your knees. You're not crouching all day. Uh, you're not wearing the gear. Uh, moving from catcher to the field seems to make a real difference. Moving anywhere else on the field to somewhere else on the field doesn't really seem to matter that much. Okay, so, so perhaps this exists where a player is uh, less concerned or whatever, but it's not necessarily showing up in the numbers from what we can tell. Right. Uh, I have not seen uh, any evidence that, you know, moving a guy down the defensive spectrum other than catcher is going to lead to a significant boost in offense. Um, now, what's do we know what's going on with Adam Lind? Uh, this, is a, this is a player who, was like three, four years ago now, seemed promising. I mean, at some points, I think he was probably the best player on the Blue Jays. Um, yeah. And then just fell off, I guess, largely because uh, he, he couldn't really hit lefties and was exposed against them. Um, and then I guess wasn't hitting righties as well either. Uh, but he's doing something now. What is it? Well, he's got a 390 batup that helps. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I think you know certainly some of his success is not real, and the, you know regression is coming. You can say that about pretty much any player who's having the best season of his career. But in Lynn's case, a large percentage of what he's doing well is. Um, probably uh, a little bit of an illusion and, and not sustained. Uh, but, you know, he is drawing walks and kind of like Encarnacion, uh, he does hit for power and he does, he does make some contact. And so I think, you know, this kind of skill set the Blue Jays have had success with, but he's still in the same vein where the um, Toronto's figured out kind of coach these hitters into being successful players and their ballpark might be part of the reason why that guys like this succeed in that park is, 
uh, it rewards fly balls. And, you know, I think there's something to the idea that the Blue Jays really put a high value on extreme fly ball power hitters, uh, guys who hit the ball in the air a lot. Um, they get rewarded for it in, in Toronto's ballpark. And so, uh, you know, I think Lind has been in that ballpark for a while. This isn't necessarily a case where he went to Toronto and adjusted, but, you know, I think Toronto has some history of success of turning players like this into pretty good hitters. But I don't think Lind is going to uh, completely collapse. Uh, you know, he's he's probably going to regress somewhat, but he's probably an above-average hitter even when all his regression is done. The... Uh... Uh, so a couple different avenues or routes. Uh, the uh, the Blue Jays acquired this offseason two uh, what appeared to be promising middle infield types, middle infield third base, rather flexible in uh, Emilio Bonifacio, of course part of the big uh, the big trade from the Marlins, and then additionally Meisteris Turris, who had had a number of uh, promising seasons with the Angels, and um, appeared as though he might be able to. Uh, you know, might, might be worthy of a starting spot in a major league team. Together, those two players, uh, with about equal distribution at this point, are worth almost two wins below replacement. Um, I would say a less heralded acquisition uh, uh, for the for the Blue Jays over the past year has been um, Munonori Kawasaki, uh, formerly of your Seattle Mariners, Dave Kierman. Uh Kawasaki has actually been quite valuable. I think currently sporting one of the top five. Um, uh, war marks on the team <laughs> and not doing it not doing it in any sort of crazy fashion i think just by making a lot of contact etc what how does the uh, what does this what does this look like i guess for the rest of the season in terms of the infield uh, the infield you know minus first base uh, but the infield for the blue jays yeah i think that this is one of those examples of where sample size matters a lot because you know while Kawasaki has been better than his turret and Bonifacio this year uh you know to date and you know each of them has like a hundred and fifty or so plate appearances um I don't think there's much of a chance that Kawasaki continues to be a better player than either of them i mean Bonifacio is certainly a flawed player he's not a great hitter, but he he can play multiple positions, maybe not well, and he's also uh, an excellent base runner, um, steals a lot of bases at a pretty good success rate. Um, I think Bonifacio has value as kind of a, a pinch runner, defensive replacement, extraordinaire bench player, and Isteris, uh, you know, has a pretty long career of being a, a decently below average hitter uh, who can play multiple positions um, and, you know, has across-the-board value, where Kawasaki was legitimately terrible last year in Seattle, was not, not really a very good hitter in Japan. Uh, there's really no track record of Munenori Kawasaki being able to hit. This looks like a, a bit of a mirage, even though you, you might not look at it and say, oh, his Babbitt's too high or you know, this mark can regress. Just the fact that he was hitting for any power whatsoever uh, and not uh, you know being totally useless to the plate is out of line with his career both in Japan and in Seattle last year. Um, so my guess would be that the Blue Jays are aware of this and, and know that this is um, not going to continue. With Reyes coming back, I think Kawasaki will find himself in kind of a cheerleader bench role, uh, and Isturis and Bonifacio will continue to play uh, in fairly regular amounts, in part because Isturis is under contract two more seasons after this one. Bonifacio actually has the kind of skills to make him useful off the bench. So there might be a little bit of a playing time crunch, but my guess is Kawasaki is going to be the one who Feasible or just reduction in playing time. And what, where's where's Brett Laurie at the moment? He's injured again. Again, right? And uh, yeah. what, what, do you know what the injury is this time, and, how, and at what point he's due back? 
I believe it's an ankle. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think it's his ankle. And uh, last I heard, if there was no timetable, he wasn't close to starting a rehab assignment. Uh, you know, he's not necessarily the, the most durable player in the world to begin with, and uh, it doesn't sound like his return is imminent. You say he's not necessarily the most durable. It's also a question of, like, decision-making too, right? He seems to uh, – he's rather aggressive. Yeah, okay. overly aggressive, yes. Okay, all right, right. Running into things, et cetera. All right, uh, and then um, we talked a little bit about on the offensive side. I, I, you know, I should probably ask questions about Colby Rasmus, but we should also move forward. Uh, the pitching is still an issue. L- looking over the uh, the war leaderboard for the Blue Jays pitching staff is um, – uh, it does not appear promising at this point. I think their two or three best pitchers, uh, at least by that measurement, are relievers, and that's not usually a good sign. No, but I think, you know, they've got pitchers who have underperformed in the first couple months who uh, have significant track records where you can look at Mark Burley and Josh Johnson and R.A. Dickey and say, you know, there's talent here. There's reasons to expect them to do better than they've done. So uh, I would I would caution against saying the Blue Jays don't have a good pitching staff just because they haven't pitched well for two months and, and then it turned it around as of late. I think, you know, if you get Hat back in the second half and you and he, you know, starts throwing his harder knuckleball and they don't trade Josh Johnson and they still have Mark Burley, that's uh, a pretty good starting four. Now, uh, according to the projected standings we have at the site, uh, Blue Jays, Still uh, projected to finish last uh, in the AL East. Um, in this case, by yeah, it looks like eight games, something like that. Um, is you know, would, is that still the most likely outcome um, in your opinion? Yeah, I think you know the tough thing is just that they're in a really difficult division. I mean, you know, I think if you put them in uh, maybe the NL West or uh, you know a division that didn't have four other good teams, their playoff chances would be better. Uh, you know, I think at the start of the season, the uh, the forecasts all called for this to be a really tight race, um, and so the fact that the Blue Jays have a five and a half game hole means that they they have got to be you know uh, presumed to be uh, the underdogs at this point, just because they have a gap to make up, and it's not clear that they're better than any of the teams they're chasing, or at least not significantly better to the point where we would expect them to outplay the Red Sox by five and a half games or the Yankees by three and a half. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is a good team and a division of good teams that has some ground to make up. It's not impossible for Blue Jays to make the playoffs, but, you know, it's probably unlikely. Okay. Uh, so we're moving on from there. Now, uh, well, it's sort of relevant because we're getting to the point of the season where teams have to make uh, decisions about whether they're in contention or not, et cetera. Uh, to that point, it was it was not you. You were planning on doing it, uh, but I believe Tim, it's either Dirks or Durkies of MLB Trade Dirkis. What do you, yeah, do you, you say it. Tim Dierkus. Dierkus? Dierkus. I was right on neither account, but uh, Tim Dierkus yeah. then, I guess. You're positive. Well, I met him, and I called him Tim Dierkus, and he didn't punch me. So, <laughs> this was, so if someone called you uh, Dave Cameron, then this, you're... Yeah, you're yeah I'm taking a fling. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Violence is the resort when someone mispronounces your name. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, but he beat you, well, uh, no pun intended... Or maybe intended. He beat you to the punch in this particular case. He did, right? Yeah, yeah that's a nice little segue there. Yeah, hello. Uh, he beat he beat you to the punch, and uh, I guess what's happened was everyone is now making custom leaderboards. There's a custom leaderboard USA, uh, at least. Uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, right. Uh, so what what custom leaderboards have been made, and what do they tell us? Well, Tim made three uh, custom leaderboards of potentially available, uh, according to him, speculating. Uh, 
players who could be available at the trade deadline or players who might be moved before the trade deadline. And he basically went through the list of non-contenders, the you know eight to ten teams who probably don't have much of a chance of making the playoffs, and picked out guys who are either you know free agents to be or overpaid or uh, aging players who don't have a future with those organizations uh, and have some would have some value in other teams and, and kind of compile the list of position players, starting pitchers, and relief pitchers. Um, and then I kind of grabbed all three of them and put them in a post. Here, here's some links from the game. So uh, yesterday was certainly custom player list. Uh, trade deadline acquisition day, but uh, you know I think the custom player lists are one of the neatest features on the site, and this is a really great way to use them. Right. So, so I, I like this. Uh, you briefly mentioned it, but let, let's kind of go over, if you would, um, or maybe state you know definitively what what are the criteria we might use for building a list like this? Because I guess there are some sort of uh, tried and true criteria for doing something like this. Um, you started off yeah. by saying players who um, I guess are in teams that are not in contention. That's that's where we'll start. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, the Marlins, Astros, White Sox, Cubs, Twins, Mariners. Um, you know, there's a handful of teams that really have no chance of winning this year. So they are the ones who are going to be fielding calls from contenders where they say, hey, you know, you've got a free agent who's going to be coming off the books at the end of the year. Why don't you trade it for a prospect now? Right. And so that's the second thing, right, is say once you've identified the teams that are not in contention, then you're looking for a player – with uh, who's who's going to be who, who's an imminently a free agent? Uh, how often do we see players traded one year away from free agency? Yeah, that happens too, especially with pitchers. I think we've seen the teams are reluctant necessarily to give up uh, high-end pitching prospect or high-end prospects to get rental pitchers because pitchers are so um, kind of flaky and you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. So uh, I think what we've seen, you know, Chris Lee was a, a guy who was traded. Uh, with a year and a half to go in a contract, that's become more of a common thing is when teams are saying, okay, if I really want to upgrade my rotation, I want multiple years of team control uh, over a frontline starter. The problem is this year there really aren't any frontline starters available. If the Phillies don't make Cliffley available, it's a whole bunch of uh, kind of mid-rotation starters or back-end guys, and, and those are not the kinds of guys that teams want to have multiple years of control over at that point if you're just looking for a, a patch job at the number four or number five spot in your rotation, you kind of want them to be a free agent at the end of the year so that you can try and do better over the offseason. Now, you've uh, you've written recently about a player like Nate Scherholz, for example, from the yep. from the Cubs. You're optimistic about Nate Scherholz? I am. I think he's, uh, he's been one of my guys for a while. It's kind of a skill set that I really like and think is undervalued and that he's not great in anything, but he's decent at everything. Uh, he you know, plays pretty de- good defense in the corner and uh, basically that label that gets stuck on guys with tweeners because they don't have uh, the traditional power for a corner outfielder that, that people think, oh, yeah, if you play left or right field, you need to hit 30 home runs. Chirons is not a 30 home run guy. He might not even be a 20 home run guy. Um, so I think these 10 to 15 homer left or right fielders get underrated uh, almost entirely uh, in every case. <laughs> like, you know, these good defensive uh, double hitters who play corner outfield um, they're just—it's an underrated group of players, and Sherald fits perfectly into that. He's having a really good season for the Cubs at age 29, signed for two million bucks over the winter, and he's uh, going to be under team control through next year via arbitration. So even if he goes to arbitration, his numbers aren't going to be good enough to get him a huge raise. He might get five or six million or something. So you get you know a quality player for almost no salary for the rest of this year, and then you have a starting caliber outfielder already under control for 2014 as well. So. So a player like Scherholz, though, or a player like, say, even even um, uh, Aramis Ramirez and the Brewers is quite good. They're not 
they these guys are not franchise type players, which and I understand that's uh, that's a little bit of a nebulous name, but I mean that I, I would guess that fans don't necessarily identify them as somehow um, within the inner circle of importance to the team. However, there are other players on this list, this uh, the trade target list, um, who are who do sort of represent something to the franchise, and it, it would it would mean that if a, if a team were to give up, for example, I'm looking at Chase Chase Utley or uh, Jimmy Rollins, if the Phillies were to, to trade those players, it would seem to me to signify something. Like we are moving on from a certain era of a club, a certain successful era, and now we're moving on to another one. Yeah, I think my guess is Chase Utley is going to get traded. Rollins probably won't. Um, but I don't know that the Phillies would be necessarily sending a signal because that leaves a free agent at the end of the year and the uh, guess has been all along that they're not going to resign him. I mean, the Phillies have never really valued Utley as much as uh, you know, Ryan Howard or some of their other marquee players. Um, and now that at least 34 and has a history of knee problems and uh, hip problems and, you know, all kinds of uh, health health issues, I think uh, he's not a guy they're going to want to invest in long term. Uh, they already have a pretty old and expensive team anyway, so they're going to have to make decisions on guys. I think the presumption is that at least leaving in, in the offseason anyway. So trading him wouldn't be as much of a, um, shock is, I mean, not that Peyton Rollins would be shocking, but uh, I think, you know, Utley is probably the guy of those two that I would expect to get moved. Rollins would actually probably even be a little difficult to move simply because of his contract and his age. And, um, you know, he's not necessarily seen as an impact shortstop, and I don't know the teams are going to want to pay, you know, the 11, 12 million a year he's got left on his deal uh, for next season as well for, a, you know, an aging Jimmy Rollins who's um, not quite as good as he once was. Uh, any other players? I mean, do, do you think you know, these these uh, leaderboards here are sorted by uh, wins above replacement for the last 365 days? This is not necessarily the exact order of, I guess, uh, most um, the, the, the the players who are most likely to help a, a theoretically a theoretical new team. Who do you sort of view as the jewels of the um, the trade deadline that are most likely also to be traded? Yeah, I don't know that there are any jewels, to be honest. I think, like, if, if the Phillies decided to make Cliffley available, then he's by far and away the best player on the market, and okay. it's not even close. Uh, but it sounds like they're probably not going to make Cliffley available, or at least the asking price is going to be so high that teams aren't going to be interested in taking on the entire contract that he has left of $25 million a year for the next couple of years and giving up significant prospects to get in. So if we assume that Lee's not getting traded... Uh, everyone else I thought it was basically a role player or a solid piece. I mean, you know, like the, the best hitters available are guys like Ali, who, you know, got some injury problems. Uh, Alex Rios is a nice player, but, you know, probably not going to turn your franchise around. Um, and, you know, he's got a $12.5 million contract for next year, so, you know, you have to decide if you're going to get the good Alex Rios or the bad Alex Rios, whether that's a good thing or not. Uh, you know, I think basically the, the players available at this deadline are not super impactful. It's, it's role players, it's number three or number four starters, uh, it's, you know, middle relievers. There's just not a lot of big name marquee guys who are going to be moving in July. Oh, okay. So, and, and have teams figured out what the price is, uh, especially with the new, um, the new collective bargain agreement? Have teams figured out what the price is, uh, for these, uh, you know, pending free agents available in the trade market? Well, I don't think the, the price has been figured out because they haven't been traded yet. So there seems like teams are still negotiating. But okay. I think uh, what we've seen kind of with the changes in the CBA is that there's some offsetting effects. So um, retaining a free agent 
uh, especially like a free agent reliever, is not nearly as valuable as it used to be because you used to be able to offer them arbitration uh, and get multiple draft picks, including, you know, maybe even a, a top 20, top 25 pick uh, from whoever signed your, your free agent reliever. Uh, you can really stockpile draft picks now because of the qualifying offer in order to get draft pick compensation. The minimum salary for 2014 is going to be about $14 million. You're not, you're not going to make that qualifying offer to marginal players or relievers. So it, the pool of players that teams would want to keep in order to, to make them that offer uh, is reduced. Um, but at the same time, draft pick compensation is not as valuable as it was either. So uh, teams kind of have less incentive to keep these these players. Um, and so you would think, okay, well, that's going to drive the price down and uh, they'll be more willing to trade them. But then at the same time, the second wild card means that there's more buyers and fewer sellers. So there's kind of offsetting effects here. I think what we saw last summer is that the price was higher than it had been previously. But, uh, you know, it's hard to say if that was a, just a, a spike because of uh, the players that were available or if that was a trend that's going to continue. Yeah, we're always wondering if uh, are these trends going to continue, Dave Cameron. That's what we say. Mm-hmm. That's basically what Fangrass is here to tell you. Is this a trend? Is it going to continue? Um, if we consider this podcast a trend, do you think that trend will continue? This Probably. It might, it might even return to Monday eventually. Yeah, it might. But, uh, but it's done for today, actually. I, I, uh, looking over, uh, um, looking, at, looking at the, the amount of time we've been recording, even though we wasted a lot of time early on, um, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to say right now I'm going to make an executive decision and say you fulfilled your obligation to Fangrass Audio. Good. Um, uh, apparently, this week we've analyzed all puppies in stock markets. Yeah, we've done. We took care of those. Uh, we also, though, have a meeting shortly to a business meeting. Yes, very excited about the meeting. Yeah. So I'm going to eat a sandwich. Uh, I'm going to make sure make room for a sandwich. But anyway, in the meantime, uh, thank you for thank you for playing today. And thanks for having me as a contestant. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, managing editor Dave Cameron. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.